0: Wonderful good evening and we're so thankful that you're here tonight and we're glad and thankful for the opportunity we have to be able to come together to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're going to be looking at John chapter 17 as we think about the title Authority in Worship. Now I began last Sunday evening and I I figured it'd be good for us to do a series on worship itself. And it would help us in our worship as individuals, but also corporately as well. But whatever you do in word or in deed, we are told, do all in the name of the Lord. Colossians 3.17 Really, that's the thrust of our desire here at Central. And it ought to be the desire of every person to do everything they can for the will of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul said in Colossians 3 and verse 17 that everything we do, in word or in deed, that we're to do it by the authority of Jesus. It says, Do all in the name of the Lord. That is by his authority. Giving thanks in God the Father through him. We're looking at a series of lessons that are centered really on the theme of worship. And again, as we look at to what the Bible has to say, I would emphasize the fact that everything we do in matters of faith, we are governed by what the scriptures tell us. And I don't think there's anything wrong with appealing to scripture. I don't think that we ought to be ashamed when we appeal to a thus saith the Lord for matters of faith. Now, the first thing that we notice here in our worship is the criterion for worship. And what we're really emphasizing is the standard, if you will, for worship. What is our standard for worship? It is nothing else but the Word of God. In other words, there's a divine pattern that we find that has been given to us, and we're to honor that pattern if we want to be pleasing to Him. We can go back and we look at the Old Testament for this idea, this concept of pattern, and in the Old Testament scriptures, those people had a pattern to follow. For example, there was a pattern given for the building of the erection of the tabernacle. In every word they would, every place they would <coughs> every place they would go, every place they traveled, there was a pattern, a certain pattern that they had to follow. Each tribe had a certain duty to whereby to erect the tabernacle or take down the tabernacle in a certain way each time, a pattern, if you will. And by the same token, when we talk about our worship to God, when we emphasize the fundamentals of the faith, there is a pattern that we ought to follow. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, it was Paul talking to young Timothy. He said, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And so there is a divine pattern that we are to follow. And as we think about the criterion for worship and the fact that the word of God is our pattern, then there is that delegation of authority that we follow. Now we begin by noticing the authority of God, the father Back in Exodus 15 and verse 8, there was Moses who tells us that God will reign forever and ever. Paul would say in Ephesians 4 in verse 6 that that God is above all. But notice this: in John 17, 1 and 2, as we had read just a few moments ago, Jesus here is praying to God the Father in the shadow of the cross. He's, He's about to go to the cross and die. For you and for me. And so John says there, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes toward heaven. And said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. Now listen to him in verse 2. And thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life, to as many as thou has given him. That implies that God the Father manifests supreme authority. And as I said a moment ago, God is a sovereign being. He is above all. He is over all. He reigneth forever and ever. Do you remember in Daniel 4, and verse 25, that Daniel had acknowledged this much in the long ago? Daniel said that the most high ruleth "...in the kingdoms of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will." That simply says that God is over all, isn't it? That's right. God is over all. And the Bible tells us in Psalm 99 and verse 1 that the Lord reigneth. Now, consider with me the authority of Christ. And really what we're emphasizing here is that God the Father has delegated this authority down to His Son, Christ Jesus... Notice again at verse 2, where Jesus said that, the, that God the Father had given him authority, that is power, over all flesh. Uh, this is not a new concept, all right? This is not something that the apostles had come to hear for the very first time. Because back in John 5 and verse 27, Jesus, of course, in that context, is talking about the resurrection of the dead and the judgment to come. And in verse 27, he said, the father had given him authority. Hmm, yes. Authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Not only was he the son of God, but he was the son of man as well. Who better then to judge you than the one who's been in your shoes? He he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to experience sorrow, joy, in all that, he understands. And who better to judge you on all of mankind than the one who's been in our shoes, the one who's been given this authority? That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5:10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, right? We will stand before the Lord as Paul again would say in Romans 14:11, as it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God, and of course that is the second member of the Godhead, Christ Jesus. In Matthew 28:18, Jesus would say, that all authority that is all power has been given unto me in heaven, And on earth. In Matthew 17 5, when Jesus was transfigured on that mountaintop, the, the whole point was that he was in the presence of Peter, James, and John, as we talked about this morning. But Moses and Elijah appeared on that occasion. God the Father spoke forth from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. What God the Father was saying is that I have given this authority down to my son. He's the one you need to listen to now from this point on. Okay? And so we talked about the authority of God the Father, the authority of Jesus Christ, the Son. But now think with me for a moment about the authority of the apostles and the New Testament writers. Now, now let's look at John 17 And let's begin with verse 6 and go all the way up to verse 10, where Jesus said, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I had given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I come out from thee, and that, thou, and that they have believed that thou didst send me. I, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which, has, which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus, of course, has been instructing his apostles. He's been talking unto them about heavenly things, that is, the spiritual things. And they in turn, with that, they would what with what they had learned and what they had received by way of the Holy Spirit, that they would then teach all flesh, that is, all men. As a matter of fact, if we go back to verse 3, listen to what Jesus said. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The apostles would be responsible for making known Jesus Christ and him crucified. Their their desire, their goal was to spread the gospel to the known world so that men and women might enjoy a relationship with the Lord. Now look at verse twenty of John 17. Jesus said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. And so here we have the authority of the apostles and the New Testament writers. Now back in chapter 16, verse 13, of the Gospel of John, Jesus said, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he shall guide you into all truth. Jesus was talking to the apostles. And really, when you look at John chapters 14 through 16, you look at it really as one section. Jesus is talking to the apostles here, and he's telling these men that they're going to be endowed with a special revelation from Almighty God. And they would take that revelation, they would then write it down in human words. And thus, those who would read what they had recorded what they had written would be informed about the very will of God. They would not be in a state of, uh, I don't understand. You see, they would know and they would be informed about the will of God. Now, when Paul wrote to the saints in Corinth in 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-seven, he said, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Yeah, that's right. Paul was writing that he was writing the commandments of the Lord. These weren't his words. They came from God through the Holy Spirit to Paul. Now, did the Apostle Paul have the authority to do that? Absolutely. Now, here's what you need to see. We talk about the authority of God the Father, then the authority of Christ the Son, The authority that's been given unto the apostles and the other New Testament writers. And then we find that authority is further delegated through what we might call Scripture or what we might call the Bible. It's been delegated on down to us through the Word. Now having said that, let me call your attention to several passages of Scripture that will help us to understand that a little bit more fully. We go to 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 where Paul said that all, A-L-L, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The book that we hold in our hands, that we call the Bible, it is God-breathed, theonustos, inspired of God. It is not something that men and women originated in their own feeble minds. Peter would say, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man that is scripture did not originate with man right but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit 2 Peter 1 21 and so we have inspired men and they took what the Holy Spirit revealed unto them and wrote it down do you remember when Jesus said how be it when he the spirit of truth has come he will guide you into all truth have it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. John sixteen thirty. That's That's understandable that the Holy Spirit would come upon these men, help them to understand the truth, not only what Jesus taught them for those three and a half years, but then what else they needed to know to write it down. Thus we have it. And so they took the truth that was revealed unto them, They wrote it down in human words. And so in Ephesians 3, and verse 3, Paul would say, How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I afore wrote in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul then was writing the commandments of the Lord. Now when talking about the authority of Scripture again, Paul said that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That is for teaching, right? I mean, what is it we appeal to in matters of faith? It's the doctrine of Christ, right? We are to walk in accordance with the doctrine of Christ. Now, Peter would say in 1 Peter 4, 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, that is the commandments of God. And the appeal there is, is to simply look to see what the scriptures have to say, to look at the word of the living God. Now we, we talk about the importance of this book, and that's what we're studying on Wednesday night. I hope that you're able to, to be here, if not, at least online. But we talk about the authority of Scripture. Look again at what Jesus said in verse 20. And there's also the importance of unity among those who believe in Jesus Christ. What is, it, what, what is it that is going to be able to bring about unity among those who believe in the Lord? John 17, look at verse 20. And listen to what Jesus said. He says, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. That is, through the words of the apostles, through the words of those men who were inspired by Almighty God. What was the purpose? Look at verse 21. That they all may be one. Unity. One. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. We live in a fractured religious world today. The religious world today, the religious landscape at large, is fractured into multiple denominations. But that's contrary to what God in his word has revealed. You see, God's desire is that we may be one, not as a denomination divided, but as one. The Lord's church is pre-denominational. It was before denominations ever came into existence, and so not only are we pre-denominational, we're non-denominational, we, we are not even denominational at all. So how then are we going to be one? The only way that I know that we can be one in matters of faith is to what? Follow the apostles. That is to follow the words of the apostles that they have written down for us right? John 17, 20 and 21. And then listen to what Luke said in Acts 2, 42. He said that the early church and they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine. That is the apostles teaching. We talk about the authority of Christ. We talk about the authority of scripture and that's what we're appealing to, right? Now let's make this observation. Now we said a moment ago That Jesus has all authority and that Jesus delegated a certain amount of that authority, if you will, to the apostles. We talked about the apostles or the authority of the apostles and the New Testament writers. And then the authority of scripture itself. Now when Jesus was on this earth, what law did he live under? He actually lived under the Old Testament law. The Mosaic dispensation. When he died on Calvary's cross... What was it that happened to that old dispensation? It was nailed to the cross. That's right. Now, according to Paul in Colossians 2.14, it was nailed to the cross. In other words, it was abrogated. It was taken out of the way. In Hebrews 9.15-17, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. The new testament. The new agreement between God and man. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was done away at the cross when Jesus died. And so what are we under today? Well, we're under the New Covenant, the New Testament, the New Agreement. And Paul would call it the Law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. It's identified as the perfect law of liberty and by James in James 1.25. It is a divine law. It is a divine standard. And we appeal to that standard. And so you and I today should look to Scripture, and we believe that Scripture regulates our conduct. That is, it regulates our conduct in the sphere of service and also in the sphere of our worship. Now, you see where I'm going, right? Now, think with me for a moment or two about the demands of authority in worship. Back in John 4 and verse 24, Jesus said that God is the spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We've talked about the aim of worship. That's almighty God. He is the audience. He is the one to whom we are to worship. But we've also talked about the attitude of worship as well. And that is we're to worship God in spirit. That is with the right attitude. And then the right heart and mind in tune with the various acts of worship we are to worship god in truth that is by his authority that has been given us we are to worship god in truth by his authority so jesus said those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth that that word must that's interesting that's the absolute when it comes to our worship we must worship him in spirit and in truth we're not talking about something that's up for debate i mean it's pretty much simple right there it's, it's not something that you and i can sit down and we can try to decide whether or not we're going to do this or do that it's already been spelled out for us and all we had to do is abide by it that matter has been settled long ago when jesus said that god is the spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth no if and or buts if you will, it's an obligation, it's a divine obligation. Now back in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, you might remember that Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was of, of course a, a one who came to Jesus by night. But he said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, of course, thought that he was talking about some kind of a physical birth, didn't he? And so he asked the question, well, then how can a man, there in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and other spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to say, in verse seven, "Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. That word must is an obligatory obligatory, obligatory term. What Jesus is saying here, is that if you want to be a member of the kingdom, if you want to be one of my disciples, what what do you have to do? You must be born again. Well, he said in John 4, 24, when Jesus talks about worship, he said that we are to be, in order for us to be pleasing to Almighty God, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's with the right attitude and in truth, that is by his authority we then ask the question, okay, if we must do this, then what is truth? That's what Pontius Pilate asked Jesus. He said, what is truth? John 18, 38. Jesus said in John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God, the gospel of Christ, scripture is simply the truth. And that's what we're appealing to now. And so there are four types of worship set forth in the scriptures. As we look through the New Testament, there are four distinct types of worship. First, we read of vain worship. In Matthew 15, 8, and 9, in this context, Jesus talks about those who honor him with their mouth and with their lips. But he said, but in vain, they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And according to Jesus, this type of worship is governed by the commandments of men, not by God. There's a second type of worship that we read about in the scriptures, and it's called ignorant worship. Now, we've talked about it many times, but you go back to Acts chapter 17, when Paul went to the city of Athens, and the Bible tells us in verse 16 that his spirit was stirred in him when he saw that the city was wholly given to idolatry. And then in that context, Paul, having discussed the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead with the philosophers of, this, of his day, the Bible tells us in verse 23, For as I passed by and, and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Here were people that were worshiping any number of gods. We live in a day and time when pluralism reigns. People today have no problem worshiping any number of gods. And so that would be classified as ignorant worship. Now Paul talks about in Colossians 2, 23, what is called will worship. Now let's read some of the definitions that are given regarding will worship. Will worship denotes a self-made religion. Now Thayer describes it as worship, which one devises and prescribes for himself. Contrary to the contents and the nature of faith, which ought to be directed to Christ. It was Vine in his commentary who characterizes it as voluntary adopted worship, whether unbidden or forbidden. And then another definition, it's a form of worship which a man devises for himself. Everett Harrison describes it as a worship not dis- not prescribed by God, but only by the will of man. Now, as we think about vain worship, ignorant worship, will worship, there is in a sense a correlation here, particularly between will worship and vain worship. Vain worship, of course, has to do with those who are honoring the commandments and the traditions of men in lieu of what god has has commanded and teaches and then will worship is the idea that that says well hey whatever pleases me whatever i want to do that's what i'm going to do i don't care what you think right in regard to vain worship or will worship i got to ask this question how many times have you heard somebody talk about certain things that in worship or certain things in the name of religion and they say they say well you know uh, it, it may not say that in the scripture uh, well or the bible may not talk about that per se but i like it and i want it and that's what i want to do well you you can't that you can't go by that right that's that's not a standard we have to be careful when it comes to our worship to almighty god Nowhere, And I would encourage you to go back and begin in the patriarchal age and then go into the Mosaic age. And then, then I would challenge you to look back by, uh, uh, page by page at the New Testament. And we're living today under that Christian dispensation. You'll never find one instance, not one example, where God, whereby God has allowed men and women to dictate how they're going to worship him. Not one time. He has never allowed a, a man or a woman to say, well, this is the way that we are going to worship God. It's not our prerogative to say, you know, hey, uh, we're going to worship this way or we're going to do things this way because we like it or because we want to do it this way or because we, we think that's the way we ought to do it. And I remember reading about a man that, that thought, and he said, behold, I thought, when he found out that that wasn't the right thinking, you know, Right? I mean, nowhere has God given man the liberty to do that. We realize that God the Father is our creator, that God the Father is our redeemer. That's true. God the Father is the one who has given us this book that we call the Bible. That's true. With that, does it not stand to reason that the creator of heaven and earth, the one who framed this world, the one who made us in his own image and likeness, does it not stand to reason that he has every right to tell us how to approach him and how to worship him. Good question, isn't it? And I think that many in the world today would say, Whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute, wait a minute. No. The man that put us on this earth, I, the creator that put us here on this earth, that is God. And he has that right to decide how we are to worship him and how we are to approach Him. The very idea that men and women would think that they are at liberty to decide how they will worship God is presumptuous. Here's an example, an Old Testament example, of somebody who gave God what he thought God would accept and worship. We briefly talked about it this morning, but go back to Cain, Genesis 4. And Abel, of course, brought forth the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof, Cain did what? He brought forth from the fruit of the ground there, verse 3. The Bible says that God had respect unto Abel and his offering, but Cain and to his offering he had not respect. Verse 5. Do you think that there was a difference between the two by God and their two offerings? I mean, made by God in their two offerings? The answer would be yes. What about Cain? I mean, surely he was sincere, okay? Surely, surely he was doing what he thought was right. I'm not questioning that. Think about the time that it took for him to cultivate that offering, right? I'm not questioning that. The difference, though, was Abel offered his by faith. Listen, those are the two words that we need to understand. By faith. Cain did not. Now, listen to what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews eleven four, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. How does faith come? Well, Paul said, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Now, there are a lot of things that take place in the realm of religion under the guise of worship. And when you and I begin to look at what the Bible has to say, the bottom line is this. They don't meet the litmus test of faith. There are a lot of people that are worshiping God worshiping God in a manner, in a way that's not prescribed by the New Testament. I'm well aware of the arguments that there are for a lot of things. Well, let me illustrate it in just a couple of ways. I would say that most people in the religious world use instruments of music in their worship to God. God told us what he wants. He wants singing. Ephesians five nineteen, Colossians 3, 16. And that's what God said. Sometimes people will go to the Old Testament and they go back to the book of Psalms. Well, I understand it. And maybe, maybe God allowed it back then in the, under the Old Testament. But again, let's go back and understand what I said earlier. We're not living under the Old Testament law. And, and what about the sacrifices they did under the Old Testament? Why aren't we doing that too? You see, there's so many other things. What about the uh, ins- burning of incense prayers going up? Why aren't we doing that too? It's because we don't live under that law. We live under a New Testament law. We don't need to go back to the book of Psalms. We don't need to go back to, to any Old Testament example for what we should do in our worship to God today. We look at the New Testament and see what Christ taught us, what God taught us, and what the apostles taught us, and what the scriptures say—that's it. It's not about—it's not about whether or not I like it. It's about whether or not God likes it. And again, we go back to that—that that scripture: "And whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him." Colossians three seventeen. That means to do it by His authority. Look at the repercussions that Cain faced all because he didn't follow the word of God. There are so many things that people are doing in the realm of religion. And then when you begin to look at what scripture has to say, you can't find it. Now, I I said last week that we do not worship God by proxy. (laughs) I mean, when we read in the scriptures about singing, we understand that we are to engage in active singing. That means every one of us are to engage in active singing. It's not some special group. It's not a group performance, but rather it's every individual Christian engaging in that act of worship. Joe has been leading for us this morning and tonight, but he's leading us in that song so we know when to begin and when the end, what the pitch might be, and what we are to sing by the number. All right? That the, because he told us what number, that ruled out all the other numbers. Don't just don't lose, just pick a number up there and just start singing it. When goes when uh, Joe starts to sing, it's not it's not that. You go by what he said, by what he's asked you to do. It's not up to us, all right? So there. What about women preachers? Oh wow! So uh, they're... We're talking about that which is governed by the commandments of men when they allow even the women to get up there and preach or to assist on the Lord's table or, or to, to lead in prayers when there are men present. You see, are there not religious organizations that have conferences and, and associations that decide whether or not they can allow the women to preach and then all the eyes say yes and all the nays say no and, and all the eyes have it? And then all of a sudden, now you got women preachers? Where is that in the Scripture? It's not. They are governed by the commandments of men. I want you to hear me very carefully. When it comes to women in the realm of preaching or teaching, we understand that women can teach, and they are supposed to teach. Read Titus 2, 4-5. through 5. But what needs to be understood here is that they are not to teach over the men. Paul said... But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. 1 Timothy 2.12. It's not about ability. There are women who are extremely knowledgeable of the word of God. As a matter of fact, there are some women that I'm convinced that they know the book from cover to cover. In fact, they know it better than a lot of men. It's not about ability. It's about authority. That's the point. It's about what God in his word, legislates. That's why it's not up for debate. God's already spoken. God has already told us what he wants. Now, with regard to true worship, in John 4, 23, Jesus talked about true worship, and he said, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Jesus is saying that God is interested in men and women worshiping him in spirit, and that's with the right attitude, and in truth, that is by his authority. There are five acts of worship that are spelled out in the New Testament. We talk about the preaching of the word of God, right? The preaching, where Paul said in 2 Timothy four two to preach the word, to be in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. In Acts twenty verse seven, when the apostle Paul was in the city of Troas, as with other disciples, what did they partake? They partake of the Lord's supper. That was the second act of worship. But then they also had the preaching of the gospel. Some would say that a better way to appeal to people and a better way to reach out to the masses would be to dramatize the Word of God. Many are doing that. Why? why? Because why should we not do that? Well, because Paul said preach the Word. He didn't say dramatize the Word. The early church, that's what they did. Uh, they went everywhere sowing the seed of the kingdom of God. Acts 8 and verse 4. And so when we come together to God in our worship, we're to partake of the Lord's Supper. We remind ourselves of the body that Jesus gave on Calvary for you and for me. We partake of the cup that is the fruit of the vine that reminds us of the blood that was shed in his death. And then we, we give of our means as a separate act of worship called the contribution where you can give so to further the cause of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Now, in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, Paul said, I would therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. But then back to verse 4, the Bible says that God would have all men to be saved. That word men there includes both male and female, that is men and women, anthropos, that is God's desire that his creation be saved. But then in verse 8, he said, I will that men, aner, that is male only God's desire is that men pray in that leadership capacity and then we are to sing we're to sing and make melody in the heart and with grace in our hearts to the Lord the acts of worship that I have described to you they may not be glitzy they might not be fashionable by the standards of the world but when the world looks at the worship of the New Testament church the response may be that's all well that's boring Well, it doesn't matter if it's boring to you. What have you give in your worship to God? Because God prescribed it in such a way that it's not boring unless we're boring, you see. And we should not be bored at all. I don't see how that can be any other than what God wants. And we need to understand that. Now, all of this is in accordance with the book, that is, with the, what the Bible says to do, it really doesn't matter what people think. It matters what does the Bible. Say. And if you're going to follow the Bible and follow the scriptures, well, we might as well. Well, if you're not going to follow, then we might as well close up shop and just go home. But we are to follow God's word. I would rather preach for a congregation that wanted to hear the truth. I'd rather preach before 15 people than to preach to a house full of people that don't want to hear the truth because it's all about the truth. Jesus said, and that truth shall set you free, John 8:32. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the many blessings and the favors that we enjoy in this life. We're thankful for the opportunity and the privilege that we have to approach your throne of grace and mercy, to be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, we ask that you would give us a heart that's inclined to be able to do your will and that we will always look to your word for the will and to forgive us of our faults, our shortcomings, our failures. And may we strive to do the best of our ability to worship you as you have prescribed. And may be, and, and, and may we be, in a kind, loving, and truthful way, be able to share what has been shared to us, to share what your book says about worship and those that are in the world altogether, in Jesus' name, do we pray, Amen. If you're here and not a Christian, well, let's encourage you to become one. He's already prescribed what you need to do to to be saved, and that you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Then you must repent of your sins, that is, to turn away from those things that are wrong to that which is right. Then you must make that good confession that Jesus is the Christ, and then put the Lord on in baptism for the remission of your sin. There are many scriptures we can give you on that. If you want to sit down, I'll be more than glad to, to help you understand more about that salvation and what you can do this very night to be saved. You might be here already, a child of God, wandered away. We hope that you'll come back, be restored back to that first love, and be restored back to New Testament worship once again. So you can truly worship God in spirit and in truth. If you're in need of the gospel call, won't you come?